computers play a vital role in how we predict the weather. But before we see a forecast on TV or through our phones, millions of calculations take place on the world's most powerful computers to determine how our atmosphere may behave in the coming days. And while computing and weather prediction have advanced hand-in-hand over the last 70 years, are there limits to how far ahead we can accurately forecast? And how does the chaotic nature of our atmosphere affect this? Hello and welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. And in today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Alan Halley to discuss chaos and computing in weather forecasting. Hello, Alan. Great to have you with us here today. Um, you're a meteorologist in the research division of Met Aaron. Was meteorology always a passion of yours? So uh, g- good afternoon, uh, Liz and Noel. It's great to be here and thank you very much for inviting me to be, to be a guest here today. Um, meteorology by way of physics was always an, an interest of mine. Yeah, Physics was my, my first um, real passion subject in, in secondary school and uh, throughout university. Um, I had a brush up against astronomy as well in, in university. But um, when it came to deciding on a career path, I felt I needed something a little more tangible, a little more visible. So um, when you look out the window, what do you see first is usually the weather. So that's how I decided to do a master's in, in meteorology in UCD. Um, and from then, I wanted to continue more into a certain area of research. So uh, heavy rainfall events were, were uh, of particularly interest to me, having survived the uh, flooding in Galway in summer 2008 um, and having some real personal experience with, with dealing with it. Um, and I also wanted to live abroad and, and learn a new language. So I, I got the opportunity to do a PhD in um, heavy rainfall events in France, um, in 2010. So I moved to Toulouse in 2010 and did a three-year PhD with, with Meteo France and stayed on for a couple of years working with them afterwards. And then I had the, the, the luck to move back to Dublin and uh, get the position I currently hold in, in the research division in Aaron. Today we're talking about numerical weather prediction, so essentially how we use computers to forecast the weather. And I guess through this podcast, you might hear us refer to NWP, so that's just numerical weather prediction. But um, can you give us, just to start off with, a really broad, straightforward explanation of what numerical weather prediction is? So I guess it's, it's, it's the main tool we use for forecasting the weather. So as the name itself suggests, numerical, so there's, there's, there's um, analysis and computation going on there uh, and prediction. So we're looking into the future. Um, how it's done then, very, very simply, uh, we have a set of equations that are known for the last 150, perhaps 200 years, uh, and they describe the motion of the atmosphere. So when I say the motion of the atmosphere, I mean how particles of air interact with each other, um, how the air moves around, how it moves up, how it moves down, how pressure changes, etc. And in order to get an idea of what the weather is like now, we also need a set of observations. So we have observations of, and people will see the stations around the country, so wind, temperature, pressure, um, etc. And we take that information and we put it into a model. The model is a very um, complex machine built on the initial equations that I just mentioned. So that model takes the observations as input, and then the equations are resolved or um, you figure out the answer of the equation, let's say, um, into the future 
And then at some stage, you get a final answer. Let's say if you wanted to know the weather 24 hours from now, you would keep resolving the equations, keep getting answers until they told you what the answer was going to be in 24 hours. And then that's the forecast that you will see or hear about on TV, radio, or um, on your app or on your phone. So an example then of, of the NWP you're talking about is basically that little icon that's telling you whether you're going to have sunshine um, with a bit of cloud and there might be a little rain symbol on that. That's that's all actually coming from um, a numerical weather prediction model. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So anywhere you've seen any little sunshine or any little rain icon anywhere on your iPad, on your phone, on the TV, the information that creates that icon comes from the output of a numerical weather prediction model. So without these models, those icons wouldn't exist and you wouldn't see any weather information on your phone. So obviously computers nowadays are playing such a big role as you say all these um, this weather information we're getting is coming from numerical weather prediction. How did we forecast the weather before computers? Um, so the equations were also known before we had we had computers so it was it was a, a more of a hand analysis approach so um, I talked about observations already so um, observers would record the very very um, uh, in, in great detail I mean um, observations every hour um, of wind temperature humidity uh, and the other variables uh, and then they would draw analysis charts uh, particularly based on pressure uh, and from that analysis of the observations in different places, they would draw lines of equal pressure and they could see where low pressure was, where high pressure was. And then knowing what low and high pressure um, setups lead to, you can induce um, what the weather is going to be like. So there's the famous example of the D-Day observations um, that were taken in Black Sod uh, up near Belmullet in, in 1944. And the analysis of those observations led to the delay of D-Day by, by one day. So that would have been a very, very important piece of uh, analysis um, back then. So in a lot of ways, like this um, physical understanding of the atmospheric processes lend itself to mathematical description, um, which eventually led to numerical weather prediction. But it's a, actually a guy called Lewis Richardson. He's considered kind of the father of numerical weather prediction. What, what was his kind of vision of, of what the future weather forecasting would be back in 1920? So you, you said it yourself, uh, Louis Fry Richardson was a visionary uh, of his time. So he basically um, foresaw what we now have, which is computer-based uh, models of the atmosphere. Um, but his original vision was something called a forecast factory. So obviously in the 1920s, there were no computers. So his idea, which when you think about it now is, is, is absolutely crazy, is to uh, by hand work out each one of the equations. So there are four equations, uh, um, four basic equations of, of motion of the atmosphere. So work out each one of those uh, for each uh, particular location you're looking for over a period of time uh, and try and get a forecast by doing that by hand. So this isn't something that you do yourself. So he, he figured out he needed 64,000 people to be able to work out um, a forecast that would be useful, that you could use in real time. Um, and he called this his forecast factory. So if you want to imagine um, there's a conductor, a bit like in an orchestra, standing in the middle and in a circle all around him, there were 64,000 people uh, busily working away, working out the equations, handing the sheet of paper to the next person. They would work it out and 
pass it on again and eventually an answer would be gotten to. So that was his initial idea. And in a way, that's exactly what the computer model itself does is one part of it is worked out, passed on to the next part of the computer chip that's worked out and you get an answer at the end. As you say, that concept coming out of the forecast factory of dividing the globe into a grid is is continued on in, in modern computer models today, right? We we divide the atmosphere into these manageable blocks or, or grid cells, as they're called, and then we calculate the required equations and values for each of these grid cells. So for each of these cells, we have a value for, say, temperature and pressure, and that information is then passed on to the surrounding grid cells or portions of the atmosphere that may be interacting with each other. Yeah, so the grid idea was was another one he had as well. And it, it's it's basically, if you bake, break um, the uh, Earth up into grid squares, so a bit like latitude and longitude. So it's exactly the same idea. Um, and then the length of those grid squares, so um, the horizontal length and the vertical length are, are what's called the resolution of your grid. So how much actual distance of the Earth's surface you're representing by your grid. Um, So that was one of his other really, really um, visionary ideas that he had. The very first computer weather forecast was made in 1950 and it actually coincides with the dawn of digital computing. Um, It was carried out on the first uh, programmable electronic digital computer ever built. Isn't that right? Yes, so the, 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 the US were the first um, country to, to produce a, a digital or, or, or a computer-based uh, forecast. Um, and this was using a computer called ENIAC, so the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, a very, very elegant name. Um, so this was a, a, a massive machine. So um, it was 1,800 square foot in size, which is about 170 meters squared, which is, if you want a, a, a visual example, is about three two-bedroom apartments put together. So you can imagine the size of this thing, trying to manage it, trying to program it, uh, trying to make sure all of the bits work. And it wasn't, nowadays when we look back, it, 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 it it's amazing at the time, but it it wasn't able to keep up with reality. So it took 24 hours to produce a 24-hour forecast. So by the time you got your forecast, it was already out of date. Um, so we've obviously came come a very long way since then. And actually in 2008, um, Professor Peter Lynch in UCD, he, he took the original setup of the ENIAC experiment and he reran it on a Nokia 6300 uh, telephone and he was able to get a forecast in less than one second. So that's to just to give you an idea of how far we've come in, in since 1950. And initially, the, the computer ENIAC was set up to calculate kind of uh, range tables and um, firing angles of, of missiles for the US military. Um, so they were the initial years of the computer itself. And actually, an, an interesting point on that is that one of the very first uh, programmers of the machine was, was an Irish woman, um, Kathleen K. Uh, McNulty. She was from Donegal and emigrated uh, to the US when, when she was young um, and got involved in this whole programming um, space. And she was one of six women. So there were six women who were the initial programmers of, of this machine. Um, and she, she's a very famous lady in the, in the world of uh, supercomputing. And actually, that fact has been recognized by the Irish Centre for High-End Computing um, in that they named their new supercomputer, which was uh, delivered in 2019, uh, K. 
um, and also by DCU, so Dublin City University, they recognised her feats also in renaming their computer uh, building, the McNulty building. So um, th- there is a, a quite an interesting uh, Irish hand in, in the very first uh, supercomputing experiment. So I guess the development of computing and the development of computing and forecasting has has gone hand in hand really since then. And if we fast forward to today, we see that some of the most powerful computers in the world are actually for weather and climate applications. What sort of scale are we talking about when we talk about the computers they're using nowadays? In terms of size, so people may be familiar with data centers around the country. Like so Amazon. And like Amazon or um, uh, Google or Facebook have data centers that are being constructed or have been constructed around the country. So supercomputers are still housed in very, very large buildings. Um but the speed and um, performance of the computers is obviously incomparable when you, when you talk about the machine from the 1950s. But some of the fastest computers in the world are also, uh, are, sorry, are for numerical weather prediction, um, as you've said, Noel. And it, it, like trying to solve numerical weather prediction equations is comparable to trying to resolve the interactions in, in the human brain or trying to model uh, the beginning of the universe. Like there's so much going on um, that you need these supercomputers to be able to model it. And actually the only other use of these supercomputers as comparable to to weather forecasting is in nuclear energy. So to to model how the um, atoms and um, uh, atoms interact with one another to produce um, nuclear energy. The observations are kind of used to kind of in in a lot of ways, they help to improve the forecast in some ways. Can you go through that um, like process with us? Sure. So um, as I mentioned, the the model itself is 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 basically millions and millions of lines of computer code. Um, the the one that we use in MetAir in uh, Harmony or Rome has three million lines of code. But that that code is 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 trying to get the forecast into the future. Before that, you want to get an idea of what the weather is like now. So you obviously need to start from somewhere, uh, and that's the observations um, that you're talking about, Liz. So they they are read or taken in by the model, and the model kind of uses them to paint a picture of what's happening at the at the moment. And that whole process is called data assimilation. So you're assimilating data from ships, from satellites, from um, uh, weather balloons, from aircraft, uh, aircraft taking off and landing and while they're in transit. Um, and all of that information helps to, to paint um, what we call the initial condition or the initial picture of what the weather is now. And that's your starting point then when you want to forecast the weather into the future. But the thing about it is, is like there are, there's still, even with all those observations, there's large areas of ocean and inaccessible regions on land. And obviously there'd be remote levels in the atmosphere that we have very few or no observations at all. Um, so um, the part of the probably the data assimilation that you do is to fill in those gaps in some way is it or absolutely that's that's the whole uh, goal of the data assimilation is to fill in the gaps um that you have in your in your picture of the atmosphere so really it's trying to get an idea of what what is the weather now it, it, it sounds like such a simple idea but really if you wanted to get the most accurate and like a 100% picture of what the weather is now you would need a weather observation every to possibly every meter on the Earth's surface, and we're talking about on land, in the ocean, and up throughout the atmosphere. So that so not even just on the surface. You'd need it 
everywhere up through through the height of the atmosphere as well. Yeah. Exactly, all the way up to the stratosphere. Um, you would need some sort of information to tell you how the weather is changing to get a really complete picture of what's going on now. So that that kind of um, underlines the difficulty in getting a correct initial condition. Even even trying to understand what the weather is now is, is a really, really complex process. When you have this picture of what the atmosphere is like at the present time and then you're feeding it into your model, how long is your model... Um, running to to give you a a usable forecast? How long does it take? So we talked about the ENIAC forecast that took 24 hours uh, to create a 24-hour forecast, and that was using a very, very simple model. It was one one equation. It was the barotropic vorticity equation um, for people who are interested in that sort of thing. Um, But now our supercomputers have advanced so much um, that even if we have 3 million lines of code in our model uh, and we take in all of these uh, sets of observations, we can run the model in one hour. Currently uh, at MetAaron, the model that we use operationally runs in, in one hour um, to produce the forecast. Like sometimes, we, you know, in the forecast office, we'll get a phone call um, asking what the weather is going to be like in, say, six months time on a particular day, like somebody's looking for their their wedding day. Or if it's going to snow on, on Christmas Day. Or, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, I've had that one. <laughs> and I, you, we always have to give them the same answer, that it's it's simply not possible to to for that level of detail, um, to forecast that level of detail um, with, with a long lead-in time like that. It's to do with the scales of motion you're talking about. So what I mean by that is bigger objects are easier to forecast. Um, So when I talk about bigger objects, I mean um, a low pressure system or a high pressure system. They're quite large on the scale of thousands of kilometers uh, across the center of them. Um, And their movement and where their location is on a certain day, you can generally get a pretty good forecast of those um, three, four, perhaps even five days in advance if if, if it's a high pressure system and things are quite stable. Um, Beyond that then, um, in long-term forecasting, what people look for is how even bigger things are behaving. So we're talking about uh, the jet stream, something of that scale. So the jet stream is it's a boundary between uh, hot and cold air, um, 10,000 metres up, up in the atmosphere, um, and how that air moves. That's actually more predictable or quite, quite predictable on the scale of one to two weeks, uh, possibly even into a third. Um, and that's how people can do um, monthly forecasting because you can induce trends from where the forecasts or where the jet stream, excuse me, is going to be. And you can say, well, if the jet stream is here, we're more likely to get uh, low pressures or if it's here, we're more likely to get uh, high pressures. So you can have indications of what the weather is going to be like, but you can't say that on the 27th of September, it's going to rain at 10 a.m. That's just not doable. Despite the power of the computers that we're using and, and the amount of time and research that's gone into these codes and the models that are that have been developed, I'm guessing there's just so many complex processes taking place in the atmosphere, some which are on a really, really small scale, that at some point we, we, can't, re- we can't represent all these. We have to make some sort of assumptions, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. There are very small scale processes on the scale of a meter or even half a meter that are happening um, one example that I like is if it's a windy day and let's say there's some rubbish on the street and you see it turning around and the tato bag is kind of swirling, 
Um, like in American Beauty. Like in American Beauty. Um, something like that is almost impossible to forecast. Um, there isn't a model in the world that's going to tell you what's going to happen to that data bag. Um, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> The meteorological phenomenon that's associated with such small scales is convection, so really heavy rainfall or really gusty, strong winds or hail and stuff like that. Um, you'll often notice that in the summertime we might get rain in, in the evening, uh, thunderstorms in the evening. That's because the sun has been heating the ground all day uh, and the and air begins to rise. The energy has been building. It reaches a threshold and it starts to, to rain. That's very, very simply um, the idea of what's going on. So that, that whole process is is very, very difficult to forecast because the scale you're talking about, the interaction between the air is happening on such a very small scale, like and we're talking about meters here, that we're just not, we're not able to, 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 to forecast what's happening at such a small scale. So the limit on something like that is, is, is a number of hours. So thunderstorm forecasting is a really, really important um, aspect of, of Metairn's role. We, we, they're, they're dangerous phenomenon, um, but it's also hard to get the forecast right for them um, because of the difficulty in, in, in uh, forecasting convection. So we're talking about a, a timescale on the matter of hours. So between six and nine hours um, is usually when you can get a very good uh, convective forecast. So for thunderstorms. And a huge limit on that right is what we were talking about er earlier is this picture that you're trying to create of the starting point in the atmosphere right you you develop what you called your initial conditions and uh, you know some of the listeners may have heard that the atmosphere is sometimes referred to as chaotic and that's that's related to um it relates to these initial conditions maybe you can uh, explain that for us yeah so chaos is um it, it, it sounds uh, quite, quite a sexy topic and um, people will heard, have heard of the butterfly effect perhaps. Um, but what it means in terms of weather forecasting is that um, the atmosphere is what we call in um, weather forecasting and a, a chaotic system. So what does that mean in plain English? Well, it means that, as you said, Noel, we want to have uh, very good initial conditions to forecast what our atmosphere will do. But... If, however, we miss even a very small aspect of our initial conditions, um, the forecast we'll get at the end will be completely different. So it's all to do with the initial state or the initial conditions or the initial um, setup of a system. If you change those even by a minute amount, the result or the forecast of the motion of that system or the, uh, in our conversation, what the weather will be like will be completely different. And that kind of dependence of the end result on the initial conditions is kind of key to talking about a chaotic system. And actually, there, there's a, a really famous um, American meteorologist, uh, kind of a, one of my own uh, personal heroes is a guy called Edward Lorenz. And he was one of the scientists that, that discovered this um, fact. And he had, a, again, a very simple model, and he um, had a computer because he was doing this in the, in the, in the 60s. Um, so he forwarded his model in time. He got an answer, but he wanted to go back and just be sure that his, his answer was correct. So when he did the forecast the first time, he put his initial condition as 0 0.506. 
And then the second time when he did it, he put it as 0.506712. Th- those numbers might not be exact, sure, yeah. but just to illustrate. But then the answer he got at the very end was completely different. And we were talking about a, a difference of four decimal places after the so a very very small difference so he was able to show that well okay my system is completely dependent on my initial conditions and he was the one that came up with the famous butterfly effect um name so he was giving a talk uh in some seminar and um he want obviously he, he he needed some illustrative example so People may have heard of the example of the butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil can lead to tornadoes in uh, Texas. And what he really means there is that if your initial conditions change even a small bit, your end result may not be the same. The, I think the, the analogy that sometimes I go to that I find useful is if, you have, if you're standing with a ball on the top of a really steep mountain and you've got slopes either side of you, and where you place down that ball, even if it's only by a meter difference, it could completely vary where it rolls off to in the end. So a small little change at the very beginning can have a huge difference down the line. And that's that essentially is limiting how far we can forecast into the future. It's actually a very good example as well in for fans of Jurassic Park. Uh, Jeff Goldblum's character is trying to explain chaos um, when they're going around Jurassic Park. The shorthand is the, the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking and in Central Park you get rain instead of sunshine. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and then I go too fast. I, I go too fast. I did a flyby. No. Give, me, give me that big glass of water. We're going to conduct an experiment. It should be still. The car's bouncing up and down. But that's okay. It's just an example. Now, put your hand flat like a hieroglyphic. Then. Now, let's say a drop of water falls in your hand. Which way is the drop going to roll off? Over which finger or over the thumb or the other side? Thumb. Let's see. Aha. Okay. Okay. Now, freeze your hand. Freeze your hand. Don't move. I'm going to do the same thing. Start with the same same place again. Right. Which way is going to roll off? Let's say back. Yep. Same way. Same way. Same back. Same way. <gasps> it changed. It changed. Why? Because tiny variations, uh, the, the orientation of the hairs on your hands. Yeah, Alan, look at this. Um, the amount of blood distending your vessels, imperfections in the skin. Imperfections in the skin? Microscopic, microscopic. <laughs> and never repeat and vastly affect the outcome. That's one. Unpredictability. Right. Jeff Goldman, he's the best. Okay, so you've talked about like these initial conditions as being a source of, of error um, in, in the forecast. And there's, there's also some other sources of error in the forecast that I can even think about. Um, just, just something that you've been talking about is like we're feeding these um, observations in. So for me, the idea of a temperature, I, I look at that as an explicit you, you can explicitly forecast that because what you're doing is you're feeding in a temperature that's been measured by a thermometer into the model and comes out, it spits out a forecast temperature, right? But um, say something like a cloud, right? You can't measure that with a thermometer or or a barometer or anything really. So how um, you can take a picture of it with a satellite. But obviously, I think, you know, feeding a cloud into the model, that would, how you forecast a cloud would become very difficult. So in some ways, are some are some things more forecastable than others? Definitely. I, I'd love to see you trying to measure a cloud with a thermometer. That'd be interesting. <laughs> um, definitely. Yeah, no, you, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Ter- uh, temperature and in particular wind are, are sometimes said to be the more forecastable of variables um, because they're kind of uh, 
constant. So there's there's always some wind, there's always some temperature. So they're always varying or moving, um, and it's easier to capture those um, because we have stations dotted around the country and because we have satellites looking down on us. Um, but something like precipitation is a non-constant variable. It's either yes, it's raining, no, it's not raining. Yeah. Um, so that would be one of probably the most difficult uh, variable to forecast because not only do you have to get the location of the rainfall correct, you have to get the intensity and the duration of the shower. So there's the rainfall itself and then there's three variables associated with it. So it's, it's, it's a quite a difficult um, one to, to forecast correctly. But in terms of, of um, assimilating cloud into the model, you can get some cloud um, information from satellites. Um, they do, do give you a good indication, especially of cloud top temperature. So if you have very cold cloud top temperatures, that's going to indicate to you that, that there's some thunderstorms in that region. In terms of, in terms of the models that we're running today, um, are they at a scale that we can see these features that are small enough? Like, what kind of what kind of space are we looking at within our model? What are those those grids that we talked about? How how big are they? So, if you're talking globally, um, so the big global superpower in terms of weather forecasting are the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting, based in Reading. So, they have a global model that's at a nine kilometer resolution. So that means that each point on the grid that represents a, a physical point in on the Earth's surface is represented by nine kilometers of actual space within the model. Um, so that means, like you quite rightly said, that you can't resolve something that's below that's, that size. So if you have a thunderstorm that's smaller than nine kilometers, you have to do something else with your model uh, to be able to cor- uh, correctly forecast that. Uh, in terms of regional forecasting, so what we do at, at MetAaron, uh, we have a 2.5 kilometer resolution model. So that means the sides of each of our grid boxes over Ireland and over our, our domain, which stretches out far into the Atlantic and uh, covers uh, Great Britain and some of uh, France as well. Um, the sides of those are 2.5 kilometers long. So we're representing each physical point in space by a 2.5 kilometer um, grid point. And it's fair to say that there's, you know, there's more than one global model. Um, Obviously, like, you know, there's, you know, there is the ECMWF model is considered um, one of the best, if not the best um, global model. But there are other models such as the UKMO run a global model, Meteo France do as well. I think um, Germany, DWD, as well, and 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 the Americans, and so there there are a number of global models as well, and they all, they would all have their own regional models um, as well. So we've got a lot of a lot of computer power, um, you know, being focused on this idea of trying to get um, the forecast correct. But given all of the things that could possibly go wrong, sometimes I think it's it's almost amazing that we can actually forecast the weather with uh, any degree of accuracy at all, um, given the, the limiting conditions. I'm still astounded by it that I, I, I think it's, it's, it's often undersold the achievement that a numerical weather forecast is, that, that we've advanced so much scientifically that we can predict the future with such accuracy. And in terms of the evolution of that, so um, I, I picked favourite and went with the ECMWF global model. You quite rightly said there are many, many more. But in terms of the evolution of the ECMWF's global model scale, for example, the model that they have now 
the scale of their seven-day forecast, so a week from today, is as good as the three-day three, three day forecast was in 1985. So in the space of 34 years, they've advanced four days. That might not sound like a lot, but the achievement to move from out to a seven-day forecast in terms of that accuracy is, 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 is amazing. And there are big advances been made to tackle some of these factors that are limiting um, our, our forecast ability, our skill, um, in particular how to tackle this sensitivity that we talked about to the initial starting conditions of a model. And this is to do with ensemble forecasting. Can you explain to us what that is? So ensemble forecasting is, um, I like to use the analogy of a, of a horse race. So when you go to bet on a, on a horse, you usually bet on one horse and you hope he's going to win. So in weather forecasting terms, that's a bit like deterministic forecasting. You run your model once and you get your answer at the end and you say, that's the answer. But what if you bet on all the horses and you said, OK, my answer is somewhere within there uh, and I'm going to get a winner at the end of it. So ensemble forecasting is a little bit like that. You don't run the model into the future just once. You run it into the future, let's say, uh, 11, 12, 30, 40 times. And the horses, if you want, or the ensemble members, as they're known, are different from one another because they have different initial conditions. And it's all about trying to capture that uncertainty that we talked about earlier that Ed Lorenz discovered in the initial conditions and trying to represent that within your forecasting system. Because if your forecasting system is configured correctly, your answer is going to be somewhere in the in those 12 or 30 forecasts and you can use statistical analysis then to work out your most likely forecast uh, and give you it's 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 mostly very important in uh, high impact uh, weather events so um something like uh, um, storm ophelia or storm emma that we experienced recently so ensemble forecasting would have been very important in in those types of situations and it's 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 also known as probabilistic forecasting um, because if you have 12 members or 12 horses, let's say, and let's say 11 of them tell you it's going to rain tomorrow, you can uh, figure out a probability of the rain. And it's, it's, it's more um, popular in, in America and perhaps in Western Europe. Um, and, and for anyone who's visited the States, they will have heard tomorrow there's a 40% chance of rain. So what they really mean by that is that if we lived today, um, let's say, 100 times on 40 of those days, it would rain. So it's, 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 it's an attempt to convey to the public the uncertainty that there is in weather forecasting um, and trying to, 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 to get them to, to um, understand that message. I guess the, it's starting to become like the forecaster's role is starting to become the idea of communicating that message like you're saying a 40% chance of rain that means a 60% chance that it's going to be dry right so you know you're you're absolutely right yeah the the, uh, the communication of the message is 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 uh, paramount here especially when we're talking about um probabilities and uncertainties and they're the kind of things that people when they hear them they get quite um uh, uneasy about they're like oh god and no, all that secondary school all over again i've i've finished with that but it's 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 how you represent the information um so 
there are a number of ways to do that. Uh, you can say, oh, tomorrow the temperature will be between uh, 22 and 25 degrees in a certain location. So that's one way to talk about uncertainty Uncertainty even. Um, you can give uh, confidence to a forecast. Um, so you might say, my confidence out of five is four. So you're, you're saying that there is still un- some uncertainty uh, related to a particular forecast. Uh, and we also, we talked about the probabilities um, themselves already, but I... I I still think this is a, a, an area that hasn't been cracked yet. Nobody has, has, has the golden key to unlock the chamber of uh, probabilistic uh, communication. I, I still think it has to be done. And I think there will always be a level of uncertainty with weather forecasting because we simply, we're talking about the future and nobody really knows what the future is going to hold. We can only give an, a, an approximation um, at, at best. It'll low. It'll never be 100%. It'll always be, you know, 99% or less, you know, that, that kind of idea. Um, and it's also the interpretation of, you know, you talked about ensemble forecasting. I've been on the desk sometimes when you can have two, two situations that could happen and they might be completely at odds um, to, to each other. And it's, it's also, it's about communicating the idea of you have two conflicting forecasts. How do you, um, how do you tell people and communicate that message to them? So there's still, there's still a role for forecasters. No, absolutely. That's where the skill of the forecaster comes in because, um, like you rightly said, you can be presented with conflicting scenarios, um, and then it's up to the forecaster's experience and judgment and decision making. It's really all about decision making at the end of the day, because the forecaster has has that pressure to make the decision and and communicate the message or not, or say to the public, yes, it will, no, it won't, um, and how to translate probabilistic information into a binary zero one yes, yes no, no decision do i hang my clothes out or not yeah it, it's it's a really it might sound really really simple but it's a really complicated process and good luck to the person who, who comes up with the answer to that and one of the things though about um forecasting it really is a team sport you know we we need the numerical weather prediction modelers and we need the decision makers as well to come together and uh, come come together as a team. And that whole idea of um, sharing of information and data that's really at the heart of meteorology. And Ireland is, is in fact in a consortium, isn't that right? Yeah, Ireland is um, in what's called the Hirlam Consortium. So this is a, um, a grouping of uh, European National Meteorological Services. Um, so there are um, all of the Scandinavian countries, um, ourselves, Spain, uh, and then we're also in a larger consortium with what's called the Aladan Consortium. So France, um, the Czech Republic, um, Portugal, and a number of other European countries as well. So uh, yeah, exactly. It's not a one person or a one country job. Even back in the Cold War, the Russians and the Americans shared meteorological information. You know, it's something that's just taken for granted um, that it's to everybody's benefit to share the knowledge and to share the information. Uh, and the model that we currently use, the Harmony Arome model, which is our short range forecasting model in Metairn, was developed within this consortium um, and is, is continuously developed every day by 100 or more scientists uh, working across Europe. Um, in terms of the future then of, of collaboration, um, we will also be moving to kind of a, a, a collaborative atmosphere in terms of uh, supercomputing. So 
We currently use a supercomputer that's based in the UK, but in the future we'll be joining forces with some of our, our Hirlam friends um, and we'll um, purchase a computer together. Um, and it's all about sharing resources, sharing knowledge, uh, sharing science. You know, the end result, weather doesn't know about boundaries. You know, uh, If you go to Denmark, uh, the weather doesn't know that you've come from Ireland. The weather's just there, so... We have to share and we have to um, work towards the same goal together. That's the that's I guess the the future for our forecasting within Metairn and and within Europe and globally as well. Uh, within that future is a move to ensemble forecasting. Is that inevitable? Is that the is that where we're going towards? Yeah. So that's it, it's almost seen now as as the gold standard of of of, um, of weather forecasting is to move towards an ensemble forecasting approach. Um, it just allows you to represent so much more information than a single deterministic forecasting would. And it also allows you to capture that inherent, unescapable chaos that's in the atmosphere. Like It's not going away. Um, so we need a system specifically designed to be able to represent that. And that's what ensemble forecasting is. And we actually have um, taken steps in that direction already. So last October... Uh, Metairn made operational um, or started to forecast using um, a short-range ensemble forecasting system, which is called the Irish Regional Ensemble Prediction System, or IREPS. So this is um, short-range, so you're talking about a day and a half into the future, and the aim of it really is is to um, for those high-impact weather events. So it kind of came into operations in uh, October of last year. So since then, we've had um, a couple of storms, but p- perhaps most notably Storm Hannah. So IREPS was very, very useful in kind of pinpointing the time and the location of the red uh, wind warning forecast for Clare and for Kerry uh, between 6 and 9 p.m., I think it was, on the 26th, uh, 26th of April. So that tool allowed us to say, yes, the winds are most likely to be strong in these areas uh, at that time. In, the, in addition to the development of computers, one of the, I guess, the biggest tools for, for uh, forecasters and meteorologists is the increase in data that's available, observations. So we have more and more satellites every year that are observing the weather. We've got radar systems. You mentioned we have observations coming in from aircraft. Uh, in the future, how do you see this improving our forecasts? Um, it's, it's going to lead to a, a huge improvement, I think, especially in terms of citizen science and in the area of uh, crowdsourced observations. So um, observations from uh, your mobile phone, a very, very simple uh, pressure reading from your mobile phone. Uh, observations from cars, um, they can be biased, um, the temperature reading on your car, but it's still information that can be used. Um, and also from private weather stations. So people like to purchase weather stations and put them in their garden or in their field or, or, or wherever. And that information currently isn't, used or at least not all of it so something like that will become um, important tools as we go into the future and actually there's a one of our partners the Norwegian Met Service are quite advanced in this area uh, and they take in um, thousands if not millions of, of, of uh, observations daily uh, into their own numerical weather prediction process so it, it is the way of the future um, and a- another example that I like is is um, 
there are some people looking at uh, assimilating whether the wipers on your car are moving or not. So as we move to smarter vehicles uh, into the future, so if that information, yes, no, my wipers are on or not, can be transmitted uh, to a numerical weather prediction center, that can be assimilated into the model and hopefully lead to a better prediction of rainfall. But what if you're just washing your windscreen? Um, I'm sure we could come up with some quality control process that says uh, windscreen or not. So what you're saying, I think, in the future is like we're going to be living in a more probabilistic and risk assessed world. We're kind of probably going to see more forecasts of like percentage chance of this happening. And also the way, you know, we formulate warnings will probably go along with that. You know, the the idea of, you know, a 10 percent chance of a of a hurricane happening um, the idea is that, you know, on a 10% chance of whether it's going to rain or not, those are two very different um, ideas and two very different kind of risks. 10% chance of a hurricane, that's quite a serious risk. 10% chance that it's going to rain a little bit and, or, or not rain, that's not the same thing. So it's it's really is, I think, going to go along with that idea of, of an impact-based um, risk assessed kind of worlds that we're looking at, I think, in forecasting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, that's one way of, of cracking the nut of communicating uncertainty is, is talking about impacts. So you use an impact decision table or a matrix is one way of, of uh, communicating that. And what I mean by that is you talk about so the likelihood of something happening um, and then the impact of it. So in your hurricane and rainfall example, well, obviously a hurricane is much more impactful than just plain old rainfall. And so that would have a high impact, um, but it have a low probability. So you mentioned 10%, but you would put that somewhere in the middle of your impact table, whereas you would put rainfall on a lower pedestal compared to that because it has a lower impact, yet it might have the same uh certainty associated to it and i guess it's it's trying to move away from forecasting the weather to forecasting uncertainty so um we're for like you said we're forecasting risk we're not just forecasting uh rainfall wind or temperature so it's the impacts and the risk and the probability associated to to, to each of the the phenomena will the models ever get good enough to put forecasters out of a job or will it be like the forecasters jobs just going to change Am I going to be out of a job? I don't uh, think so. I, there'll always need to be somebody to take a decision. So there'll always have to be a decision maker at the end of this process chain. So we have all our observations, all our numerical modeling. That gives us some sort of information, probabilistically or not. But then there, all, there also has to be somebody that looks at that and says, well, what decision are we taking or what decision are we conveying uh, to the public and to interested parties? And that's that's the role the forecaster plays currently um, and I think will continue to play um, for the foreseeable future. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your input on that, Alan. It was really interesting. Um, hopefully we will include some of the information that you gave us up on our website as well today. Yeah, we've definitely got a picture of um, Lewis Richardson's forecast factory with the 64,000 people. Well, not not exactly, but there there is a schematic of that. and so An illustration. Like, yeah, yeah um, probably have um, a picture of Kay, the, um, the woman flying the flag um, for us with the ENIAC. And maybe the Nokia phone. I think the Nokia phone has to go up there. Right, well, thanks very much for coming in, Alan. Thank you, guys.
For our climate summary this month, we'll go over to Paul Moore, who has the details on how our weather has been over this past summer. Here are the seasonal highs and lows for summer 2019 based on data from Methern's 25 synoptic weather stations. The summer of 2019 was warmer and wetter than average in most places. Persistent high pressure over Greenland and the far north led to a mostly negative North Atlantic oscillation, with Ireland positioned on the cool northern side of the jet stream for much of the time, and dominated by low pressure. This led to a cool, wet June, followed by a warm but drier July, and a warm and wet August. In a repeating pattern during the summer, near the end of each month, a hot plume of air spread northwards over much of Western Europe, leading to record high temperatures in several countries. Ireland was on the western edge of these hot plumes, but still influenced by low pressure in the Atlantic. There were several warm days and nights during each event before the unsettled weather returned. The wettest place for the season was Athenry, County Galway, with 438mm of rain, which is 60% above average. The driest place was Oak Park, County Carlow, with 184mm, which is 4% below average. The wettest day of the season was at Claremorris County Mayo on the 19th of July with 49.5mm of rainfall, which occurred during some strong thunderstorm activity. There was a significant amount of lightning activity on a number of days during the summer, especially the 29th of June, the 19th and 30th of July and the 4th, 8th and 9th of August. The highest mean temperature for the season, 15.5 degrees Celsius, was at both Dublin Phoenix Park and Shannon Airport County Clare. This was 0.7 degrees Celsius above average for Phoenix Park Station, but 0.2 degrees Celsius below average for Shannon Airport. The lowest mean temperature was 13.6 degrees Celsius at Knock Airport, County Mayo, 0.3 degrees Celsius above average. The highest temperature for the summer was reported at Shannon Airport on the 27th of June with 28.4 degrees Celsius. The lowest temperature was reported at Mark Cree, County Sligo on the 15th of June with 1.1 degrees Celsius. The sunniest place for the summer was in the southeast, where Johnstown Castle in County Wexford recorded 582 hours of sunshine, 17% above average for the season. Knock Airport County Mayo was the dullest place with just 333 hours of sunshine, which is 17% below average. On a global scale, according to the World Meteorological Organization, June was the warmest June on record, July was the warmest July on record, and initial reports suggest that August was the fourth warmest August on record. Thanks for that, Paul. I guess, Liz, our summer didn't really live up to the scorcher we had last year. Yeah, it's been a bit mixed, really, compared to last year. Um, Like 2018, summer remembered for heatwave and drought conditions. This summer, well, it actually started out quite cool, didn't it? And some warm, sunny weather at times, but showery episodes as well. Um, I mean, June, June, July were quite nice, right? And then... Yeah, they were okay, mm. but it wasn't um, it wasn't completely dry. We didn't have the drought conditions. Probably good for grass growth, but um, but yeah, we um, definitely in the north and west. It was it was quite a, a wet affair, I think, um, and particularly like uh, a lot of thunderstorm activity, um, particularly around late July and through the first half of August. Um, and this is probably mainly just due to the position of the jet stream. Um, you know, it's kind of right over us. Um, on, especially kind of late July, early August, um, 
directly over us so it brought in a lot of unsettled weather and and our weather was kind of dominated by low pressure a lot of the time Um, there was like incursions of high pressure um, but most of the time a lot of low pressure and I guess it's important to note that even if in Ireland we haven't had you know a particularly great summer that it was exceptionally warm globally I mean um, in terms of global temperatures for example July was the hottest month ever recorded Certainly, we saw some crazy temperatures um, in some parts of Europe, like France, uh, the Netherlands, and and even England as well. Yeah, and we've got these ongoing forest fires in the Amazon and high up in the Arctic, and it, it, it's highlighting the difference between local weather conditions and what we talk about when we talk about climate change. Exactly. Right? I mean, we can have you know a not not a great period, not a great summer here, or a cold snap, or something. But these sort of long term. Uh, global statistics that we look at to determine climate change, they're all still marching upwards at the moment. And we're at the peak of the hurricane season now um, as we head into early September and we've seen in the last few days a phenomenally powerful Hurricane Dorian develop in the Atlantic and potentially uh, more storms on the way um, in the tropics. Well, as you know, in our last episode, we spoke with the National Hurricane Centre about how these storms develop and how they grow and build. So uh, be sure to check that out if you'd like to have a bit more information and haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this month. Our thanks to Alan Halley for speaking with us, Alan Bennett at Headstuff, and Gavin Gallagher, Joanne Walker, and the communications team at MetAaron. Thanks to you for tuning in. And as always, you can find more information about today's topic on our webpage at met.ie forward slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the webpage or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. And get in touch with us using the Met Aaron Twitter and Facebook pages, using the hashtag MetAaronPodcast, or by emailing us at podcast at met.ie. Thanks for all your comments and suggestions so far. We've had some good suggestions for future topics, including those from Philip and Sligo and Martin and Shannon. We hope to get to those in future episodes, but please keep the ideas coming in. We hope you'll join us again next month, but for now, we will leave you with the Met Aaron Choir, the Ice of Ours, and their version of the swimming song. Thanks for listening. Take care. Swimming this summer I might have drowned But I held my breath and I kicked my feet And I moved my arms around Moved my arms around This summer I swam in the ocean And I swam in the swimming pool Solved my wounds for in my eyes I'm a self-destructive fool I kicked 
Oh, my God.